We are in Romans 12 this morning. In the last 30 years, if you were to flip on the television on any given night of the week, uh, there's a good chance you would land on a show uh, that taps into our human yearning to belong. I mean, scroll through Netflix today, see all the shows that are, you know, on syndication. There's a lot of shows that depict our longing for community. Pretty much since the advent of television, we've been treated to a myriad of sitcoms portraying um, a, a disparate group of people who come to love and support one another. They don't start out as family, but they come to treat each other as family, become a family. So you have Seinfeld, you have Friends, you have The Office, Scrubs, 30 Rock, Parks and Rec, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Ted Lasso more recently. You know, all of these shows, they're trying to capture that experience of coming to love and be loved by a group of people that don't seem to belong to one another or with one another. Now, the success of these shows demonstrates the ubiquity of this longing, the fact that all of us have this longing. Sure, the, the shows, they use awkwardness, they use the annoyance and tension in these groups to play the laughs, but it's the possibility of, of belonging, of finding belonging that they know will connect with viewers. Now, this May uh, marked the 30-year anniversary, okay, 30 years, of the final episode of the show, Cheers. Okay, some of you are like, what is that show? Well, you know the theme song, whether you know it or not. Uh, sometimes you want to go. See, I knew it. I knew it. It's old, but I knew you would know it. You want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You want to go where people know the troubles are all the same. You want to go where everybody knows your name. Now, the key word in those lyrics is want. We all want that, but struggle to find it. That theme song captured our longing for community. We want to be known and accepted. We want to go not just where they, they know our name, but they like us. They want us there. And because we all have the same exact problems, well, that means we can be understood. So the mailman and the fat guy and the therapist can all come and sit and drink their problems away and feel like they belong in that moment. Now, the question for us is, if we all have this longing, how do we find what we're looking for? Is it possible? How do we get it? Now, in our passage this morning, Paul will tell us. Last week, he told us that we are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. There's, there's a unity there, even as there's diversity. Well, this week, he will instruct us in a way of living that will create the community that we all desire. So let me read, uh, and then I'll, I'll tell us where we're going. But we're in Romans chapter 12. We're just, just a few verses this morning, verses 9 to 13. Hear what the Apostle Paul writes. He says this, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute 
to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Church, this is God's word. Let me pray. God, we ask, in the same way that your Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this down, we pray that your Holy Spirit would would open our hearts to receive it. God, speak now through your word. Would you use this time to instruct us and to give us life? In Christ's name, amen. Well, Paul says, if you want the belonging that we all yearn for, well, then this is how to live. This is how to get it. Now, I don't know what you thought when I, when I read that, but our passage, it comes at us like a rapid-fire blast of commands. Okay, Paul gives us 13 instructions in this rhythmic procession. And at first reading, it can almost be overwhelming. It's kind of like the book of Proverbs. When you read the book of Proverbs, you sit down, and you're like, if you read a whole chapter, you're like, whoa, what did, what did I just take in? I don't even know. There's so much happening, all of these maxims, these commands being fired at us. And it can seem random. It can seem kind of scattershot. But upon closer examination... I think we can assemble these commands into four groupings that show us uh, the posture of a disciple of Jesus. I think the commands are not just a a to-do list, but they provide orientations uh, of the disciple to give us a proper alignment together that we can live this life together. If we follow Paul's commands and we get aligned together, pointed in the right direction, The result, I think, will be a profound expression of community. So, what are these four orientations? They're up on the screen. Paul calls us to be relationally oriented, work-oriented, future-oriented, and sacrificially oriented. Relationally oriented, work-oriented, future-oriented, sacrificially oriented. If we live with these postures, if we live with this orientation, we will cultivate a type of community in which we truly experience belonging. So, let's dive in. First, relationally oriented, verses 9 and 10. Paul begins with five instructions that highlight the relational nature or the relational orientation of disciples, how we are to love one another. When we come to Christ, we do not get set loose onto this faith journey of discipleship alone, on our lonesome. No, we're saved into a community. While our faith, it must be personal, okay? Someone else, their faith will not save you. You must believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. It is personal, but it's not individualistic. Why? Well, because the life of the disciple is a life of love, and you cannot love in isolation. Paul tells us, though, he says, this love must be genuine. Now, literally, you could translate it, uh, let love be unhypocritical. It's possible you know, to claim to love someone and yet do nothing about it. It's also possible to, to maybe cultivate the outward appearance of love through our actions without that love being genuine or sincere in our hearts. Paul says, no, those things need to be aligned. The gospel compels genuine love, unhypocritical love. I think we need to be wary in the church not to project you know, a facade of niceness and think that's the same thing as genuine love when it's not. Now, Paul goes on. He says, real love has discernment. He says, it abhors that which is evil and holds fast to what is good. Real love requires us to know what good and evil are and act upon that knowledge. Real love requires discernment. So, pop quiz. The two greatest commandments are love God and 
Love your neighbor. Very good, okay? Jesus says, according to these two commands, love God, love your neighbor, the entire law and prophets can be summed up with those two commands. Well, did you know that the command to love our neighbor, it comes from Leviticus 19? How many of you have spent devotional hours in Leviticus 19? Probably not a lot, okay? Leviticus 19, okay, well, it gives us a variety of laws that tell us what is good and what is evil, that the command to love your neighbor as yourself, it's set in this context. All these commands about holiness and Sabbath keeping and idolatry and sexuality and stealing and economics and generosity and how we treat our employees. What is Leviticus saying? You cannot love properly if you don't know what good and evil are. Loving, well, it's more than a feeling and it's more than just acceptance, accepting someone for you know, who they are. No. You have to know what good and evil are. A parent who loves their child knows what it is to abhor evil and cling to good. When they see it come out of their child, right? A parent who loves their child knows what it is to abhor evil and cling to what is good when they see it encounter their child. They know it. They see it. They they dislike the evil and they want to cultivate the good. Real love is not neutral or apathetic. When it sees good, when it sees evil, well, no, real love, it discourages evil and it cultivates good. Real love is morally discerning. Now, in the community of God's people, genuine love comes with a willingness to address or even confront the evil and the good that we see in each other, or rather to confront the evil and encourage the good. Now, I know many of us, that's like, oh, we, we just naturally, we're anti-confrontational, but genuine love has to be. I like what Tim Keller says. He says, any love that is afraid to confront is not really love, but instead a selfish desire to be loved. It makes an idol out of the beloved. It says, I'll do anything to keep him or her loving me. But this is not loving the person. It's loving the love you get from the person. Ultimately, it's loving yourself more than the person. Any love that cuts corners morally or fails to confront is not really love at all. Real love is morally discerning. And it's willing to address what we see in each other's lives. So to be a disciple is to open yourself up to giving and receiving this kind of love. Now there are some who come to Christ and they're, we could say they're willing to sit on the sidelines but they're unwilling to enter into this kind of relationship with other believers because they don't really want to give anyone else a voice into their lives. But friends, that's not discipleship. That's not the church. That's not belonging. To be a disciple of Christ is to enter into a community of love that is genuine and discerning and works for each other's best. Now Paul calls this kind of love, in the next verse, he calls it brotherly affection. He says the body of Christ, well, it's a family. And our love is familial love. So you look at church history from early on, the church, within the church, people called each other brother and sister. That's not just, you know, like a southern greeting, oh, brother Bob, oh, you know, sister Susie. No, not just a weird cultural thing. It's, it was there because it's how they wanted to relate to one another. With a love that says, we're family, so I'm stuck with you. And this kind of familial love, well, it's both genuine and discerning and affectionate. The verse goes on. 
we show this brotherly affection by outdoing one another in showing honor. Now, Paul's language, it would have been startling in its, uh, I guess, in its irony, uh, because in the first century, accumulating honor, trying to get honor, it was a competitive enterprise. So you, you jockeyed for position in society to get honor, to build up your honor. The competition for honor was predicated on the fear, well, that, that honor is like a limited resource and a lot of people will miss out on it. So you can subtly gain honor through comparison, through establishing hierarchies, showing the distinction between you and others, how you are better and therefore more deserving of this limited resource. But the disciple of Jesus knows, no, 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 not for us. Because for us, grace abounds, and therefore we have nothing to fear. We can offer grace, we can offer honor freely to others. Because God has declared us righteous, even though we don't deserve it, we are set free, therefore, to honor one another, knowing we don't need to prove ourselves through performance or pretending or comparison. Now, let's get practical. One way we can lead, we can outdo one another in showing honor, is by aggressively eliminating gossip from our midst. Now, consider the believer who shows love to someone's face, but then behind their back dishonors them. You can say, that is not genuine. That is hypocritical love. And maybe it's, it's couched as concern or a prayer request. I'm just concerned for them, so I'm going to just tell you the horrid things they've done. Or maybe it's excused with the need to, to vent for a minute. Oh, I'm just so raw at this person. But whatever the form, gossip will perniciously break down genuine love and familial affection. And this happens when we dishonor one another with our words. So there have been times, uh, you know, in our, in our history, when Karis and I have remarked, walking away from a conversation, and we've said to ourselves, man, if that's how they talk about, you know, Judy, what do they say about us behind our backs? You know, you, just, you hear them speak about other people like, oh, you know, and then it causes you to think, oh, gosh, when we're gone, what, what's said about us? Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever thought that? What is that? Well, that's the seeds of doubt sown into and mingled with the love that should be experienced in the body. So church, I want to just challenge us, call us. Let's work hard to have Anthem, I I would say, continue to be a place known for the ways that we honor each other with our lips, where we demonstrate familial affection and discerning and genuine love. Now, stepping back, notice, as we think about being relationally oriented, Notice how easy it is for the world to affirm some of these things, but how difficult it is to hold them all together at the same time. So we can look out in our world and we can see love and affection that's uh, defined as acceptance, maybe tolerance, affirmation, and therefore, while it's genuine, it lacks discernment. Or we could see those who, well, they, they pride themselves on speaking the truth about good and evil, But in doing so, they they do it in ways that fail to show honor. This kind of relational orientation that Paul describes, it's tough. It's difficult. It's hard. And I think it's only possible in view of God's mercies to to go back to verses 1 and 2. But we'll get there in a minute. So the first posture of the disciple is a relational orientation. Second, 
We're called to be relationally oriented. We're also, second, called to be work-oriented. Verse 11. Paul says, don't be lazy. Discipleship means service. So get to work. Hey, there are some, I don't think anyone in this room, but there's some who come to the Christian life with the attitude of, you know, I just, I just get to let go and let God. You know, Jesus, take the wheel. And they know that they can't be saved through work or effort, but they mistakenly think that discipleship, therefore, means I just sit back and do nothing. I, I just get to watch stuff happen. So Paul writes and says, no, 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 do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. I love the way that Paul puts it, do not be slothful in zeal. It's, it's an oxymoron, you can't be slothful in zeal. Lazy discipleship is an oxymoron. So we need to be excited and ready to get to work in kingdom business to the glory of God. We are to be so motivated and empowered, again, by the mercies of God, verse 1, that we're ready to run after the work that he's called us to. Now, this is more than, it's about more than just setting up chairs on Sunday, although chairs need to be set up. But what Paul's talking about, he's encouraging a heart posture. Again, it's, it's an orientation. It's a heart posture towards being ready to serve in every moment. It's not just ticking a box. It's, it's a readiness to get to work. Do you remember Jesus' parable of the talents? Remember that, that parable? A man is, is going on a journey, so he calls all his servants together, and he, and he kind of disperses his monies to them. He says, I'll be back. I'll be back in a little bit after this long journey. And when he comes home, some of the servants, well, they've, they've multiplied. They've doubled, tripled the money that was given to them, and then they return it. While the, the last servant, the other servant, he just buried the money in the ground and waited for his master to come home. He did nothing. Well, when, when, the master, when the man comes back and he starts talking to his servants, he rewards the servants who did something with his money, but he calls the last one. He says, oh, man, you wicked and slothful servant. Well, last week, we saw Paul teach us about the gifts that God has given us, he's graced us with, and this week he says, don't be slothful in zeal, but serve the Lord. Don't be a slothful servant with what God has given you. He then adds, be fervent in spirit. That word fervent, it's, it's a great word. It's boiling over. Okay? Be, be bubbling over. Be, be boiling over. If you remember what we've been through in Romans so far, he's taught us that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And the Holy Spirit gives life and enables us to mortify our flesh. And the Holy Spirit leads us and helps us to cry, Father, to God. And the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and heirs with Christ. And so Paul says here, he says, let that overflow. We, let that overflow. We're so moved by this life-giving spirit that it will overflow and spill out in a zealous willingness to get after the life that Christ calls us to. Well, Paul ends this, this triplet by telling us we can be zealous and bubbly, and it's because we are serving the Lord. Our service, our work, it's done unto the Lord. In all of our efforts to love each other, to serve each other, to make disciples, to spread the gospel, all of it is done in service to the Lord. Now that reminder is huge. The reminder that, that it's the Lord we're serving because that is the most effective antidote to weariness or discouragement. I mean, we just naturally, we will be tempted to grumble. You know, why am I the only one contributing? 
How come nobody else does as much as me? Why isn't, you know, Bill here? He's so lazy. Why doesn't Judy pitch in? And when that happens, our eyes have slipped down to comparison and keeping score because we've forgotten who we are serving. Our eyes have slipped. Maybe we get discouraged. We say things like, does anybody notice how much I'm doing around here? Why doesn't anyone reciprocate given all the work I put in to love them? Why does that person get so much attention for their work and I seem to be overlooked and forgotten? When that happens, our eyes have slipped off of serving the Lord, well, to serving recognition or to serving our reputation or to serving our acclaim. Church, we are not serving our resume. We are serving the Lord. And when we get that, it, it, well, it'll boil over in love and service. We'll be ready to do this. If we remember we are serving the Lord, Paul says, well, then get to work. Be work-oriented. So the disciple of Jesus. Disciple of Jesus, relationally oriented, work-oriented. Third, future-oriented. Verse 12. Paul writes, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Paul knows that the Roman church is, or will be very shortly, experiencing persecution, affliction, tribulation. How does he know that? Well, because Jesus promised it, number one. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. And Paul lived it. This was, this was Paul's life as an apostle, as a disciple. Tribulation, trial, affliction. Paul also knows that the disciple of Jesus is able to navigate suffering and opposition in a unique way because of the amazing resource of living in view of God's mercies. Now, maybe this verse reminds you of chapter 5. Some of you are like, chapter 5? No way, that's way too long ago. Well, there Paul said, because we have been justified, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Well, this hope, it does something to us. This hope allows us to be patient through tribulation and to be constant in prayer. That's what hope does. Our hope for a good future frees us to know that this tribulation is not the end of the story. It will not ultimately crush us. Our future hope also spurs us to action in which we, we flee to God in prayer. We can pray and pray and pray and persist in continuing to pray because we know the future for which we wait. Now, the combination of these three things, hope, tribulation, prayer, they present to us an interesting test okay, that we can ask ourselves because we know our own hearts. We can ask ourselves, when we are faced with trials, will this affliction cause me to flail around in despair, disorientation, or will it cause me to trust God more? Will this affliction cause me to, to be lost amidst a stormy sea, or will it cause me to flee to the rock of Christ in prayer to trust God? Affliction that is endured in light of our joyous hope will demonstrate itself in a prayer life that trusts God. We go to God in prayer because we trust him. So if you were to talk to mature Christians who've experienced some trial or tribulation in their life, my guess is that most will say something like, I know it sounds odd, but I've never had such a vibrant prayer life than when I was depending on God through that season. 
Or flip it around. Ask any mature Christian who has a vibrant prayer life, and my guess is that many of them can point to a season of affliction as the seedbed for that prayer life. It forces us to, well, to flee to God, to trust him, to depend on him, and be constant in prayer. Learning to trust God through affliction, well, it will be driven by hope and trust in God and demonstrated in prayer. Now, some might object at this point to Eric. I've tried that prayer thing, you know. I didn't really get anything out of it. I just didn't. Well, let me tell you, this is a complaint that's been around since the days of Moses. I mean, forever. Since the Bible was written, we've had this complaint. John Newton, I don't know if you know that name, he was the famous slave trader turned pastor. He wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. He knew his wretchedness. He sung of God's grace. Well, he was pressed with this very complaint by uh, someone in his church, and his answer was essentially, you know, you're getting nothing out of praying? Well, be prepared. You'll definitely get nothing out of not praying. He says literally this. He says, above all, keep close to the throne of grace. If we seem to get no good by attempting to draw near him, we may be sure we shall get none by keeping away from him. This is why Paul doesn't say endure tribulation and try praying. He says be constant in prayer. Persist in prayer. It's tough. It feels like work. You may not want to, but persist. Flee to the throne of grace. So the believer facing affliction, called to to trust God in prayer and live in view of God's mercies, rejoicing in hope. Now think about how to do this, okay? The afflictions that, that we might face. How can we endure and persist in prayer in the midst of those afflictions? So we could think, okay, are, are you facing crippling debt? Well, the believer in that situation ponders God's mercies and realizes his or her hope. Yes, this burden of debt seems overwhelming, but my greater debt has been paid. Whatever fear or uncertainty this earthly debt may cause me, my ultimate future is secure. My debt is paid, and I have a glorious inheritance that awaits me. So I can endure this. I can get through this. Maybe you're facing chronic sickness. Well, the believer in that situation ponders God's mercies, meditates on it, and knows, well, that the only sickness that can truly harm me is sin. And Christ has set me free from the guilt of sin And God is setting me free from the power of sin and giving me his Holy Spirit to begin my healing. And one day I will be set free completely from the presence of sin and my healing will be complete. Around the world today, many believers are caught in the affliction of war. If I were to encourage them along these lines, you know, they can ponder God's mercies and know that the war for their soul has been won. The enemy has been defeated and Christ will one day come to usher in completely his kingdom forever. When the believer views their affliction in light of God's mercy and the hope that awaits, the tribulation becomes endurable and they find they're able to persist in prayer. So, the disciple of Jesus is relationally oriented, work-oriented, future-oriented, and lastly, sacrificially oriented. Verse 13. Paul ends this section saying, contribute or share in the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Christ's sacrifice frees us to be open-handed with our monies 
and our homes and our times and our talents. We can offer ourselves and our stuff as living sacrifices because Christ has already done so for us. The sacrificial orientation, it's costly. Okay, Sacrifice means it'll cost you something. Being a disciple will cost you everything, actually. I mean, just wait until next week and you'll see how costly it can get. But having pointed out the reality of affliction, Paul recognizes that affliction will create needs among the saints and will demand greater hospitality. And so Paul says, share in those needs. He wants us to be participants, partakers, partners in one another's needs. And then Paul says, from there, seek or pursue hospitality. Now, I love what we've heard this morning already in our body, in, in Preston's welcome and, and uh, Jose's sharing about their trip they're going on. This is the body seeking to share in the needs of fellow saints and to show hospitality to those outside. So, so serving and, you know, washing windows and pulling weeds in, in the mobile home park and going down to Mexico to help these, these fellow believers, you know, provide them a home that's sharing, participating in their needs. It's showing hospitality, pursuing it. That word hospitality, literally in Greek, it's love for stranger. Love for stranger. Paul, he's instructing a posture of generosity towards those inside the community. He says share in each other's needs. And those outside the community pursue hospitality, pursue the stranger with love. But that word seek or pursue, I think it's key to both. Both our, our, our contribution, our sharing, and our hospitality. If you've got the NIV in your lap, it says practice hospitality. I think that misses the point. It gets it wrong. We're not just to sit back and, and be reactive and practice hospitality, hospitality when the opportunity arises. No, we're to be proactive. And those who initiate hospitality and generosity towards one another, we go after it. Believers living in view of God's mercies will seek out opportunities to give of themselves and their money and their homes to meet others' needs and to show hospitality. You say, Eric, I'm not seeing it. What's the difference between reactive and proactive hospitality, generosity? Well, let's say you hear someone is moving, okay? Reactive hospitality waits until you hear that they need help to offer any. Proactive hospitality reaches out and says, hey, what day will the truck arrive and can I come and help move a few boxes? I've got, I've got 45 minutes, but I want to come and use that. Or let's say you notice a woman across the room is great with child. Okay? Guys, you know you don't say anything ever. Okay? You don't mention it. You don't talk about it until it's first mentioned to you and then, you know, or the baby comes out. Then you're safe. Um, <laughs> But once one of those two things happens, well, reactive hospitality is wondering, you know, maybe there's a meal train set up and feeling good about yourself for thinking about it. Proactive hospitality is telling them, hey, when the baby comes, can I bring you a meal? Can I send you a, a Grubhub? Do you see the difference? Now, there is a middle road between these that's, that's almost there, okay? You hear of a need or an opportunity maybe to serve someone, and you say, hey, that's, you know, you've got that need. Let me know if you need anything. Let me know if I can help. I'm, I'm guilty of this regularly. It's kind of like saying, oh, I'll pray for you, and then you never do. Same thing. When we do this, we put the responsibility on the one in need to initiate and be proactive. Better than that, let me suggest, you know, instead of saying let me know, Offer something concrete. 
They can always say no. They can turn you down if they don't want it. But let's say you find out someone is going to have, you know, several doctor's appointments for some ailment they're going through. And so you say, hey, is there a day this week I can pick up your laundry and wash it for you? Or you say, wow, you've got a lot on your plate. Is there an afternoon I can, I can take your kids for a few hours, help you out, give you some space? They can always say no. If that doesn't feel helpful to them, they will say no. But in doing so, we are being proactive. We are, are pursuing, we're seeking out the opportunity for generosity and to show hospitality. Now, as I explain this posture of discipleship, I know that, that some of you are feeling a little tingly, a little, a little cringy inside. You're getting uncomfortable because, well, you're actually afraid to let anyone know that you need anything. You're afraid for people to know that you don't have it all together. You're afraid that people will find out that you aren't omnicompetent. <laughs> Having a church community where together we are sharing each other's needs, pursuing hospitality, will actually mean that we have enough humility to receive other people's efforts to care for us. Many of us might need to pray for the courage to receive help. Please don't rob one another of the chance to share in your needs and to pursue hospitality together. So there you have it, four uh, postures, okay? Four orientations of the Christian life that will cultivate gospel community. We all yearn for belonging, and Paul says we can get it. Having been saved by grace, following Jesus will mean men and women who are relationally oriented, ready to love each other, in the family of God. Men and women who are work-oriented, ready to serve God in all that we do. Future-oriented, looking to our hope through all that life brings. And sacrificially oriented, knowing that serving Christ will cost us everything. Now, church, imagine with me. What would it be like to be a part of a community of people who live like this together? Think about that. Imagine what it would be like to be among a group of people who knew you enough to see the good, to see the evil in you, and they loved you like family with grace and truth and honor along the way. Imagine what it would be like to be among a group of people who served you and the community, not because they were trying to win friends and influence people, but because their master was Jesus and his spirit was overflowing out of them. Imagine what it would be like to be among a group of people who modeled prayerful endurance through suffering while looking to the future, who were neither crushed nor disoriented by their affliction, but were steadfast in their trust of God. Imagine what it would be like to be among a group of people who shared in your needs without expectation of return and were proactive in their hospitality towards you and the stranger. Imagine it. Imagine what that would be like. It would be amazing. It would feel like the kingdom of God come to earth. Friends, do your hearts long for that kind of community? I think they do. Our television habits suggest our culture is full of people who long for that. That's the life that Paul is holding out to us. He's offering us. Now, I know this, this seems topsy-turvy, right? To, to fulfill our yearning for belonging, we need to serve Jesus? 
that's how that works? I have this need, I have this hole, and to get it, I pour myself out and I serve others? Well, yes, that's the truth. That's how it works. I know it's strange, but that's, that's how it works. Jesus said, anyone who would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You can't have the kingdom without serving the king. But friends, remember who the king is. Remember, it's Jesus we are serving. If we want to live this, well, we need to fix our eyes on him. This life, these postures cannot be divorced from following Jesus. We follow Jesus in this orientation, in these postures. If we want to be relationally oriented, we need to see that through the cross, God's hatred of our evil was poured out on Christ and judged that we might be saved and cling now to what is good. And when we get that, when we see that, we can begin to live with this posture. If we want to be work-oriented, we need to see that we serve a Lord who gave himself for us. That Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the kind of master we serve. If we want to be future-oriented, well, we need to, to know Romans 8 and see that affliction is not condemnation. No, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So the sufferings of this present time, well, they're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We need to see that. If we want to be sacrificially oriented, we need to see what Paul says in chapter 8, verse 32, that he who did not spare his son, his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also in him graciously give us all things? What is there to lose when God will give you all things through Christ? When we see that, well, it'll set us free to offer ourselves, to offer everything as a living sacrifice. This life, these postures, this kind of community and belonging are only possible by living in view of God's mercies.